Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. I'm Adam Andrews, joined as always by my family, the lovely Center for Lit crew. How are you guys doing today? Great. Good. Blushing mm-hmm. at being called lovely. Well, you are lovely, Ian. Oh, <laughs> oh gee. Thanks. What is new with you people this week? Hmm. What is the, the what's what the Andrews the family matter? news? The news. The news is it's beautiful outside, and so oh, I yeah. want to be outside, not inside. Yep. Winter has the loosened news, its grip. The news, dear listeners, gentle listeners, is that we don't want to be talking to you right now. We <laughs> want to be sitting on our patios. We want to be news. outside in the sun. We're starved for sun after a long winter. We've actually <laughs> mentioned the weather several times today during the course of just general office business. And every time we say it, Emily goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the... Hey, seasonal disinfection, whatever it is, it's real. It's a real thing. Legitimately reading an article recently, a scientific article that was talking about how we're at the supplemental generation where we're stocking ourselves up with vitamins and stuff. And it's like a huge market and they're making a lot of money. But really, the problem is that we don't get enough sun. Yeah, I read that same article. I know, I sent it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I knew that. I knew that. Well, here in uh, Northeast Washington, at the beginning of the month of April, we have a lot of sun to look forward to. Mm -hmm. And we are certainly glad that winter has finally loosed its hold. So is that it, though? It's just weather? That's what we've got to report? I know what we can report. Uh, We just went to Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. That's where we were last week. A week or so ago to speak at a homeschool convention. And met a lot of wonderful people, made some new friends. And if any of those new friends from Winnipeg are listening to this episode of Bibliophiles, a shout out to you all. It was great fun. It was great to be with you. And we hope we can come back sometimes. Um, Yeah. Look, the other thing is that you you Winnipeggers um, told us that we were lucky because the weather was so nice up there. And it is. it was not. (laughs) No, it was cold. Nice. I don't know how y'all people do it living up in Winnipeg. It was cold. It was very cold and apparently um, super warm, unseasonably warm from your perspective. So um, hats off to you for surviving in such a place. Well, I think that polar vortex that that plagued all of middle North America was still had just recently left up there. So everyone was excited not to be in 40 below. That's what they told us. They said 40 below recently. Yeah. Oh. Well, anyway, good to be back and good to be with Bibliophiles listeners again. The topic for today's conversation is what are we reading? And we decided today to uh, not to put any one particular member of the Center for Lit crew on the hot seat, but to sit there all the four of us. And so the question for us all is, what are we reading? And maybe we follow it up with, why are we reading it? And maybe even follow it up then with, is it any good? So who wants to go first? Well, I'll go first. All in right. In the absence of takers. Go ahead, Missy. What are you reading? Um, I'm reading 
as per the usual, a lot of things at one time because I have focus issues. <laughs> no, that's true. But the reason I'm reading a lot of things at one time is because I'm teaching a lot of things. So at this time of year, usually I'm reading to teach. Um, that's not entirely true, but I am, I am reading some C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves. Okay. That I'm reading for a group, a book group I'm in. I'm reading Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death to teach a worldview class. And that's one I think would be fun to talk about. I, I kind of want to put that on our list of let's read it together and ah. talk about it as a group. Okay. Because get a load of this. Um, not to skip over the four loves. I can give you a little precis of that too if you'd like. But this one in particular I think would be so much fun to talk about in this context because it's kind of a, it's, it's a prophetic or sort of a, a, a prophetic analysis or, or a prescient analysis of the departure from a, from a print-based society to a more image-based society with the question of how is technology affecting our ability to read? Um, how is it affecting our ability to focus? <laughs> There's that again, focus. And mm. maybe that's my problem, <laughs> to focus and process information. <laughs> and, um, and how is it affecting what we will read, right? And I think as you start thinking about those ideas, you can see maybe even before you crack the covers of the book, what he, where he's going to go with all of that. Because really, he's interested in how form shapes content and by extension shapes the the kind of cultural understanding of truth he he argues that the actual form in which we get our information shapes the content itself and what we perceive to be truth that that mm. media in a way becomes a kind of metaphor for a culture's epistemology mm. for their mm. understanding of the origin and nature of knowledge, and that all of that together shapes our public discourse. Interesting. Really Very cool. Interesting. Yeah? Yeah, I got a little quote for you to flesh that out because I, because I like that sort of thing. Okay, my argument is limited to saying that a major new medium changes the structure of discourse. It does so by encouraging certain uses of the intellect, by favoring certain definitions of intelligence and wisdom, and by demanding a certain kind of content in a phrase, by creating new forms of truth-telling. That is fascinating. Isn't that interesting? And he wrote this um, before the social media craze. I mean, this was written, let's see, the date on it is um, 1985. So it was safe to say it has been born out. Oh, oh, and then some. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the stuff that we're talking about, about um, the media and its, its relationship to the news, um, oh, he would have had a heyday with that. But um, yeah, prescient, absolutely prescient uh, analysis of, of all of the things that we're now experiencing all these years later. And I don't think we've gotten to the end of it yet. But so I think that would be really interesting as a Center for Lit group to think about these ideas. Um, not because we're interested so much in social media, but because we are interested in the printed word and what's, what's going to become of the printed word as we kind of frolic about in the new technology and play in the virtual landscape that it presents to us, are we actually affecting our ability to take information in via the printed word? Not so much is the printed word going to go by the wayside. We could have that conversation, but I don't really think that's what he's, what he's on about. Um, I think he's talking about how it affects our ability to, to receive the printed word, the, the difference in the culture 
that gets its information through printed word and gets its information um, on the contrary through images. Does he? Does he? Uh, and I really am looking forward to reading this. I, I'm I'm embarrassed that I haven't read it yet because you've actually been assigning it to our kids for lo these many years, and I'm, I'm behind the curve. But does he talk about these things with a an either either an implicit assumption or an explicit statement that the printed word form of truth telling is preferable? He makes a pretty a pretty good case for that. That's really interesting to me because when you were talking about the the shift that he describes as the medium and as technology changes, as the medium of information transfer changes, then the the structure of truth telling changes. He was describing something that that took place when the ancient oral epics Mm-hmm. yielded to the written word. Mm-hmm. And so not only is he predicting the future, but he's also describing the past. Yes. And and I wonder if his perspective is that the printed word structures of truth-telling are preferable if he sees then a a step in the right direction from oral Homer to written Homer. That would That's be really interesting to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be interesting to talk about. I've um, actually been reading a book about that called it's on the, in the same vein as this called reader come home and it came out in 2018 i believe so it's it's very recent mm-hmm. and she is a neuroscientist who happens to love literature and she isn't necessarily talking about forms of truth but she's looking at the way that different forms of reading change our brain mm-hmm. and she talks about how oral the transition from moral to written word was a huge development in the human brain and that it um, it changes the way that we understand the world. And so she would agree with Neil Postman that, uh, that the truth telling is changed by the way that we perceive things. She noticed that the circuits of reading are very close to uh, reflection and uh, emotions like compassion and stuff like that uh, mm-hmm. that get developed. But I think she's super interesting because she is not calling for some kind of uh, return to a golden age where we limit ourselves to printed reading. She's actually looking at how we can move forward into a world that also has digital reading because we're not going to go backwards. And she recognizes that there are a lot of benefits to digital reading as well. And so she noticed that um, kids who are bilingual who speaks, say, English and Spanish, have a separate neural circuit in their brain for English and for Spanish. And she's looking forward to the ability to for humans to develop a kind of bilingual uh, reading for for print and digital. Like that different we channels know in how, our brain. Mm-hmm, exactly. Interesting. That's wow. really interesting. interesting. But I really like that because she's not She's looking forward with a positive view instead of simply ringing the bell of doom. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. That's well, Postman, I don't think it's so much that he was distinguishing between a uh, printed copy of the words versus uh, an online textual edition. He's talking about right. a shift 85. from text to images. To images, yeah. Yes, exactly. He probably, uh, yeah, would in 85 um, couldn't really conceive of anything like a kindle for example no i don't think so. well she's saying that it is it's kind of the same idea that the way that the brain picks up digital words is 
image-based because mm-hmm. that's our only experience with digital thus far, or that's our dominant experience with digital is images and scrolling and distraction. Yeah, I think he's interested in the media as metaphor, right? Okay, um, flesh that out a little bit, Missy. In every tool we create, an idea is embedded that goes beyond the function of the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And he wants to think about the idea that's embedded in the form of media that is print versus the form of media that is image. And spends a lot of time talking about the way that that fleshes itself out. And he says, our media are our metaphors. Our metaphors create the content of our culture. It's that a pretty is intriguing so interesting. Concept. Oh, man. Yeah. So anyway, I think that would be a fun one to read and discuss, maybe in concert with the one you're talking about. Who wrote it, Emily? Reader, come home. Her name is Marianne Wolf. Marianne Wolf. Reader Come Home by Marianne Wolf. Yeah, and Amusing, Amusing Ourselves, Ourselves to, death to Death by Neil Postman. By Neil Postman. And his son writes the introduction. Um, the one I've, I've got in my hand is a 20th anniversary edition. So if he wrote it in 1985, what would the uh, 2005, the 2005 edition of the book. And I thought that his son's little preface was also compelling because he's basically saying, why are we reprinting a book that was written about new technology yeah. 20 years ago? Right. You know, why are we still reading this that book? That question does jump to mind. Yeah. Why are we still reading this book? And he makes a very compelling case that it's still, we're still thinking about the ideas attached to it. It's still, um, it's still working itself out and we're seeing, we're feeling maybe even more now than when he published it because some of those things that he prophesied are coming to pass and we're saying, oh yeah, look at that. He said this and now we've got evidence that that was actually so. Maybe we should think more deeply about this matter. So um, yeah, the the introduction is just as good as the book in my opinion. He says, these Mm. are the questions. Um, He says, his questions can be asked about all technologies Oh, here, I should start here. My father asked such good questions that they can be asked of non-television things, of all sorts of transforming developments and events that have happened since 1985 and mm-hmm. since his death, and of things still unformed for generations to come, though generations to come may someday mean a span of three years. His questions can be asked about all technologies and media. What happens to us when we become infatuated with and then seduced by them? Do they free us or imprison us? Do they improve or degrade democracy? Do they make our leaders more accountable or less so? Our system more transparent or less so? Do they make us better citizens or better consumers? Are the trade-offs worth it? If they're not worth it, yet we still can't stop ourselves from embracing the new next thing because that's just how we're wired, then what strategies can we devise to maintain control, dignity, meaning? He says, my father was not a curmudgeon about all this, as some thought. It was never optimism he lacked. It was certainty. And he quotes Mm. him, we must be careful in praising or condemning because the future may hold surprises for us, he wrote. I love that. That idea has got the ring of universal applicability because of that thing I said a minute ago. You could could look back to Mm -hmm. the dawn of printing Mm -hmm. and apply the same categories to Mm -hmm. think about it. A major technological change that introduced a new metaphor of truth-telling, if I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah, absolutely. That fundamentally altered the way we consume truth or conceive of it or imagine ourselves. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's funny that you guys bring that up too, because, and this doesn't really qualify as what I'm reading presently. It's been, um, oh, I don't know, six months or so 
maybe a little more since I read this book, but it's so on the same topic. It's called uh, Disruptive Witness. And I may have mentioned it on the podcast before uh, by Dr. Alan Noble. And he, um, his thoughts in combination with what you're saying about Postman are really intriguing. He identifies uh, a cultural malaise of sorts and call, he calls it um, after a, a particular philosopher whose name I'm forgetting, I think Taylor might be his last name, but he calls it the buffered self. Mm-hmm. And he he looks at all of all of we people of the, of the modern era and says um, we are afflicted by too many choices, and one of the main symptoms of this is that our entire culture seems bent on offering distractions that have reduced really important philosophical theological worldview questions to preferences as opposed to absolutes, mm-hmm. and has and has changed the posture of the human being intellectually. So that we are now choosing ideas to knit into a mask that we wear and present to the world rather than sitting before a world of ideas that that presses in on us and defines us. Constrains us. Instead of allowing, yeah, constrains us, exactly. And that that's a fundamental difference between the modern era and the era that came before. And he does a whole chapter on the culture of endless distraction in social media and um, the way that these reading styles that you're talking about and the truth-telling that you're talking about is giving rise to that is allowing us to to essentially get out of an essential part of being a human being, which is that the world around us actually does constrain us. And the idea that it doesn't is an illusion right. and a really harmful one. He talks about how you can you can think about deep ideas um, while you're digging or cooking dinner or doing any one of these necessarily human activities. You cannot, however, think about big ideas while you're updating your fantasy football roster or scrolling through Twitter or right. I mean, there's a, there's a fundamental difference in the media that we're engaging with right now in terms of the mental space it offers you to actually ruminate. And if ruminating is essentially human, we have problems. Mm. We have some real serious problems. Mm. Listen, this, this is Postman on the same subject. He says, all, com- all culture is a conversation. Our attention here is on how forms of public discourse regulate and even dictate what kind of content can issue from such forms. And then a little bit later, he says, Television gives us a conversation in images, not words. The emergence of the image manager in the political arena and the concomitant decline of the speech writer attest to the fact that television demands a different kind of content from other media. You cannot do political philosophy on television. Its form works against the content. So true. That is so true. Isn't that interesting? Do you think it's true? You cannot do political philosophy on television? Yes. Do you think anybody would say, oh, yes, you can? Maybe, but I agree. But I mean, that reminds me of something that I came across when uh, I was studying uh, American history. And we were talking about Edward Everett and his series of debates with Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. in the, uh, the years leading up to the American Civil War. And they had a series of famous, uh, not Edward Everett, uh, sorry, Stephen Douglas, the Douglas, Lincoln-Douglas Lincoln debates. debates, yeah. yeah. Edward Everett was another um, speaker in this time that was equally famous for this particular technique, which is the two-hour-long political speech. Mm. And they got together and they debated, and it went all day long. There was, a, you know, there were there were facilities for the the audience and the the speakers to go refresh themselves at halftime. And that what they were doing is, if you've ever read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, they were actually laying out a political philosophy, and it took that long. Right. Because that's a deep subject. I think I think you've got a point that the tel- the format doesn't allow for 
that kind of thinking and that kind of discourse. Well, he the even format has, of television. He even has a chapter where he talks about how pre-TV um, philosophy and ideas were what governed the, the discussion in an election year. But now it has so much more to do with um, what they look like, sound bites and what you look like. Yeah. Like a lot of the presidents that were elected pre, pre-JFK, for example, couldn't have gotten elected after the television was, um, was our, our medium. They didn't bathe enough, you mean? They didn't, they didn't look good. You know, they were either really, really overweight or not very, not very good looking, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And they, were, sadly, they were orange. Or yeah, sadly, that's what we're, we're most interested in. Well, I would I would hate for this short conversation to um, to preempt a longer conversation about this book and and maybe maybe we we rub the book that you mentioned, Missy, and the one that Emily mentioned together and yeah. uh, do a longer conversation. That well, sounds like a lot of fun. Disruptive witness, yeah, It'd yeah, be that's fun right. To, the three of them to put those three authors in conversation with one another um, through our conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very cool. Let's do that. Uh, I think that the issue is relevant to what we're doing here at Center for Lit, obviously. Because we're we're sort of trying to combine elements of discourse and maybe truth telling, if we can use that phrase, from both sides of this divide that uh, you seem to suggest we're at or have recently crossed the divide from essentially a print based culture, or at least we're interested in a, a print based medium, right, mm-hmm. literature, mm-hmm. and then the delivery of conversation about that through social media and an image driven construct. Are we going to be successful at that? Is it possible? That would be an interesting conversation to have. I certainly hope it is. I hope so too. But it's really hard to get a bunch of um, ideas in a soundbite. But, you know, that brings up another question that, that came to my mind while you were talking. What about the subject, the issue of audiobooks? From your knowledge, and I, I want to read the book, and before we talk about it again, I certainly will, but from your knowledge of Postman's argument, um, where would the... Where would the, a return to a Homeric experience of literature fall on his scale? Would that would that amount to going back to another another metaphor, a different metaphor? If I listen to Great Expectations on tape instead of reading it on the page, is it suddenly image based instead of text based? No, I, I don't think. I mean, he obviously he does talk about how we went from an oral society to a print a printed word society, and the way that that caused intellectual development and all of that sort of thing. I don't think he would be antagonistic about the idea of listening to a, a lengthy novel being read. Um, I think I think he's more concerned about moving towards sound bites and pictures, as opposed to um, longer treatment of ideas hmm. in public discourse. Uh, well, Wolf's point about print reading is that it forces the human brain to take longer to process the words. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it inspires more reflection. Uh-huh. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to share stories orally, but... Uh, it's different. It's different. Because I've always counseled people that ask me, you know, I get asked the question all the time. My, my son is, has a trouble, you know, reading or maybe there's dyslexia or something like that. Can I have him do the audiobook of the story instead? And I have always, with unreserved approval, said absolutely. This, you know, listening to a story out loud is a wonderful experience and it's the same story and you can think about it the same way. And, and, uh, I wonder if the wolf book would, would, uh, if reading that would modify my, my view of that question. What do you think, Emily? Well, like I was saying, what I liked about her is that she wasn't anti anything. It was 
uh, a study of the different ways that the brain works and and she wasn't suggesting that digital culture is uh, a setback but rather could be a development if we take time to reflect on it if we preserve the things that are good about print reading and make sure that we use those well and then take time to think about the way that we are doing our our digital consuming and make sure that when we are reading digitally we do so carefully mm. and slowly and, and slowly uh, with intention um so i don't know i liked her for for that that each the the ear and words and images they all have their own special benefit to offer and it's just no like understanding how each one works and what their benefits are that's really cool yeah I, i'm looking at postman here and just in the first chapter he's talking about that idea of writing making possible reflection that mm -hmm. same kind of concept. Writing makes it possible and convenient to subject thought to a continuous and, con and concentrated scrutiny. So it gives us the ability essentially to revise our own understanding of something. That's interesting. I was, um, I was writing the other day and, uh, and have recently come to the conclusion, and I'm probably way late in this, but I've recently come to the conclusion that if I write things out by hand on a piece of paper with a pen, they come out more smoothly and need less editing than if I type them in a word processor. And I don't know, this is only tangentially related to what you just said, but it fired in my brain. I think the reason for that is that I can type so much faster than I can write things out longhand that I get out ahead of myself and just spew words on the page. Mm -hmm. And there's not the pace that um, invites reflection of my writing. And when I write things out longhand, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of editing as I go, reflecting, I think you could say, yes. upon the words, because they're coming out more or less at the speed of thought, rather hmm. than faster than the speed of thought, which is how fast you can... I had can a professor in college who asked us to write our, our uh, midterm paper by hand every year. Hmm. For that very reason, really, he basically said this is a this is a necessary part of the writing experience. Um, and he, I don't think he thinks much of word processors. Uh, you know, uh, I think so yeah, I had a handwritten English paper every year. Interesting. It's clear where where um, how the writing process itself, you know, us writing things down, causes us to reflect. But you were asking about the audio books mm -hmm. as an idea, mm -hmm. and I wonder about that because when you're listening to an audiobook you know oftentimes when I'm listening to an audiobook I'm doing something else I'm multitasking I'm driving and listening to an audiobook or I'm cleaning my house and listening to an audiobook right. I'm always multitasking and that means that I'm not sitting with a pencil in my hand and stopping when I come to some sort of an interesting idea or I have a response to something that the author said that I want to note in the margin so I can come back and think about it later there's no margin there's there's just um there's just air, you know, there's, there's sound. And when the sound ceases, I suppose some things lodge, but there's not the opportunity to mark it and go back in the same way, which is one of the reasons why I can't see myself ever going entirely to an audio kind right. of reading. One wonders how the original um, auditors of the Odyssey took notes, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess the parents that ask me whether assigning an audiobook to a student would be acceptable are often setting up a situation where instead of having to fight through the issues related to their difficulties in reading, they can sit and listen and then presumably 
you know, have note paper in front of them, so they or are read along, those. like you know, <clears throat> right? Uh, do you remember being a kid and and having your your read along book and you listen for the little tinker bells ding mm-hmm. on the other end of the, the you will audio. know it's time to turn exactly, the page when exactly. you hear Tinkerbell wave her wand like this. Ring. <laughs> I loved them, mm-hmm. but I always had my book there in front of me, so it was actually uh, a combination of audio and visual for mm. me. I don't know, maybe that's a good way for kids that are taking things in through through the ears, um, is to have them also have it in front of their eyes. Nevertheless, I'm looking forward to a conversation where we get to the bottom of whether those two modes of delivery amount to different metaphors and therefore different modes of truth-telling and what the implications of that are. That sounds like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's put that on our list. Okay, let's do. Um, has everyone participated in uh, this conversation, though? And what are we reading? I guess I haven't. You haven't. Oh. What are you reading? I just started a book. Um, I'm not going to allow the Center for Lit crew to let you know how recently I started it. But I started a book called How to Read Literature Like a Professor by Thomas C. Foster. And it was published in 2003. Uh, I didn't know anything about it until very recently. Evidently, it's famous. It's a New York Times bestseller. And I want to tell you what it's about and tell you why I am excited to read it. I haven't read much of it. I've read the introduction, basically, at this point. So I'm just now beginning. But the introduction uh, has some details in it that are so encouraging to me that I'm really looking forward to this book. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I heard about it from someone who says, um, I have a really good English teacher at my son's school. And this this, uh, woman came to me for some suggestions about uh, teaching teaching literature in the context of her home. And I was talking to her about our materials and that sort of thing. She said, we have a really good teacher at the, at the school who uses this book in her class as kind of a pedagogy called how to read literature like a professor. And so I was, because of my personality and character flaws, immediately skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, well, I doubt it's any good. You need to use our materials instead. And so she went off and did her thing. And then I went and got the book. And I opened it up, and the first thing I noticed is that it was published in 2003, which is the very same year that, Missy, you and I put together our materials. All right. So in a sense, Thomas C. Foster and I got into the subject and started helping people with the the reading and teaching reading process at the same time. I think that's really interesting. That is cool. Second thing is that in this introduction... He says what I say. I was so encouraged. <laughs> and I want to read it to you. Listen to this. He's describing a conversation between a college lit professor and his students and describing a problem that is the, is the reason that, Missy, that you and I got into this line of work in the first place. He's describing a, a, a conversation between a lit professor and a student A moment occurs in the exchange where the professor is explaining a work of literature to the student. When each of us, he's speaking as the professor, adopts a look. My look says, what, don't you get it? The student's look says, I don't get it, and I think you're making it up. (laughs) We're having a communication problem, he writes. Basically, we've all read the same story, but we haven't used the same analytical apparatus. Mm. If you've ever spent time in a literature classroom as a student or a professor, you know this moment. 
it may seem at times as if the professor is either inventing interpretations out of thin air or else performing parlor tricks, a sort of analytical sleight of hand. I was reading this and going, yes, wow, this is so cool. And then, so he went on and I'm going to go on too. Actually, he says, neither of these things is the case. Rather, the professor, as the slightly more experienced reader, has acquired over years the use of a certain language of reading, something to which the students are only beginning to be introduced. What I'm talking about is a grammar of literature, a set of conventions and patterns, codes and rules that we learn to employ in dealing with a piece of writing. Every language has a grammar, a set of rules that govern usage and meaning, and literary language is no different. Isn't that fabulous? Yes. He goes on, in, I presume, because I've, I've read the introduction and I've read the chapter titles. I'm all excited about it, as you can tell. He goes on, I presume, to explain some of the features of this language of reading and teach his readers how to recognize them. Now, as you can tell, he's a glorious writer. He's, he's really, it's going to be really fun to read. Probably a better writer than you and me, Missy, which is why his book is a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> I was very encouraged to find that along about the same time we were getting started, Thomas C. Foster was getting started too, saying much the same thing, pulling, you might say, the boat in the same direction up the river toward helping people read literature and understand the language of literature more profoundly. So well, I'm the more the merrier as far yeah, as I can see. Where that exactly. Right. Listen to what he says about the language of literature. literature. He says, um, it's all more or less arbitrary, of course, just like language itself. I thought that was interesting. He explains, take the word arbitrary as an example. It doesn't mean anything inherently. Rather, at some point in our past, we agreed that it would mean what it does, and it does so only in English. Those sounds would be so much gibberish in Japanese or Finnish. So too with art. We decided to agree that perspective, for example, the set of tricks artists use to provide the illusion of depth was a good thing and vital to painting. This occurred during the Renaissance in Europe, but when Western and Oriental art encountered each other in the 1700s, Japanese artists and their audiences were serenely untroubled by the lack of perspective in their painting. No one felt it particularly essential to the experience of pictorial art. And so he introduces this whole concept that a particular genre of literature has rules that are specific to that genre mm -hmm. and to the culture that produced that genre. And a necessary step in being able to participate yourself is understanding the rules. Yep. And he, in his conversational tone, he goes about saying, in effect, and the rules aren't that hard. Look, I'll show you. It's going to be great. So I'm really oh, excited. I want to read it. Yeah. How to Read Literature Like a Professor by Thomas C. Foster. Now, Emily, you've read this, have you not? I have. And what yeah. did you think? Am I, is, my, is my enthusiasm unwarranted? No, I thought it was pretty decent. It's good. It's not structural. It's more teaching uh, readers how to think metaphorically and the different literary devices that accompany that. Okay. So it's focused on, on one aspect of the language of literature, on, which on is figurative, figurative language. language. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 
I'm in. I want to read it. Yeah. He has a, um, a follow-up. Evidently, it was really successful, and he wrote another one called How to Read Novels Like a Professor. So dealing with a particular genre. A particular genre, so pr- I presume An he's going to get An illustration of his point. Exactly. Uh, the subtitle of this one is A Jaunty Exploration of really? the World's Favorite Literary <laughs> Form. Jaunty. Oh, he's never met me. I love to jaunt. I know. We're going to get awesome. his fine. It's a great word. <laughs> Jaunty should be used more often. Is he British? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Thomas Foster? I have no idea. So I'm sure that some Bibliophiles listeners have probably uh, know, know of this book or maybe even have read it, and I would be interested in your comments as I go through it. But it's probably airplane reading next time I go flying. Well, do I have to be limited to my boring neuroscience book? No. No, not at all. I have something that you, well, after you read Thomas Foster, maybe you can help me understand it. <laughs> what is it? Well, I've been, I've taken it upon myself to read a Shakespeare play a week mm-hmm. in hopes of eventually getting through his whole corpus. Wow. And last week I read for the first time ever Titus Andronicus. You did? It was wild. I've never read Titus Andronicus. I haven't either. In fact, I've never met anyone that has. Oh man, no one. Oh no, I'm the only one here who's read it. No. Yes, I think you are. It was Look so what you've done. It has the reputation for being the bloodiest Shakespeare play. And it that is not um, it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't bloody in the sense of like a Hamlet necessarily where everyone ends up dead at the end of the play or strewn across the <laughs> Bodies stage. Bodies all over the stage. But there's a significant portion of the play where the lead female character walks around. She has both of her hands cut off and her tongue cut out. And oh. she just, and she grabs things with her nubs and wow. walks around and talk and is bleeding out of her mouth and oh my gosh yeah and then i mean the famous culmination of the play titus bakes the sons of his enemies into the pies and makes them eat them Ooh, sounds like fried green tomatoes (laughs) well i'm it's sad that you haven't read it because what basically i that was a plot reading and i did not get much further beneath the surface of well, are you going to go back and, and give it next week also, or do, or does you, the rules of your game cause you to have to move on? I, I'm i going for, like, familiarity with plots right now, so I'm going to move on. I'll come back to it later. Besides, you might have the it's stomach to read it again right now. <laughs> what? I said it's no small task you've undertaken. It's about, I mean, you better keep up some momentum, you know. I'm not actually doing a full play a week. I get bogged down in the histories. Are they are the histories generally longer than the tragedies, aren't they? They are, yeah. yeah. Um, and how many plays is, is on that list? I don't, I don't even know. Thirty something. I don't know. I didn't count. So it's a year's project if you uh, have a normal a normal pace where you mm-hmm. say I'm exhausted this week and put one off yeah, every once in a while. Very cool. So I don't know. It would be interesting to talk to someone about what Titus Andronicus is all about. <laughs> Well, if anyone, if any of the listeners have read it, um, comment below and let's get this conversation going. I would like to know too, because yeah, that's, that's not one I've read. I have, I know of its reputation as being bloody and cannibalistic, but that's all I know. It was a revenge plot. I'm sure he was saying some things about revenge and mercy like he usually does. So you recognized Shakespeare's hand. Or, or lack there. <laughs> Shakespeare's. She was not stump. the only character to see him. 
Titus Andronicus cuts off his own hand too. <laughs> awesome. Bloody nubs. Bloody nubs. If your if your right hand offends you, is it that? <laughs> if the right hand of your neighbor offends you, cut it off. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Uh, okay. Anybody else? We we are boy. We're we're good readers these days. We have all, all kinds of titles. Ian, what else are you reading? Um, I don't have really anything to say. Um, I so I it's it's mildly interesting what I'm going to be reading. I haven't really started it yet. I think I've read a couple of pages of um, an extremely obscure fantasy work published in 1922 called, and I'm sure I will butcher the pronunciation, "The Worm Oruberos." by a guy named E.R. Edison, um, who was a uh, part-time inkling, I think is the way to put oh, it. Cool. Oh, um, with Lewis and Tolkien? Uh, yeah, he was a little older than Lewis and Tolkien. Um, both of them looked up to him, and the first publication of The Lord of the Rings was widely compared in write-ups across the uh, across Europe, was compared to the worm Ouroboros. So apparently it's a forebear of the fantasy, the high fantasy genre. And I was, um, well, it was recommended to me and, and subsequently loaned to me by a dear friend uh, here in Spokane. Uh, we had a wonderful evening of discussion during which he sort of revealed to me his fantasy nerddom. And uh, it was a real step forward in our friendship. <laughs> That's awesome. So anyway, I'm, I am, I'm going to make my way through the worm Ouroboros. From what I can tell, it, is, it borrows heavily from Norse mythology, which is sort of a feature of the high fantasy genre. Um, and is written in sort of an antiquated style, which is going to be super fun to run around with for a while. So anyhow, that'll be great. Really fun. If any of you have read that, let me know. I, I actually, I bet you, I bet, and this will maybe, this will cause some of you to comment. I bet that none of you have even heard of it. Much less read it. <laughs> well, I've never heard and of it. If you have both heard of it and read it, then we will owe you some kind of prize. We'll send you a t-shirt or something. I don't know what it'll be. Ian held up the cover of the book to his webcam so that I could see it in our, in our webinar meeting here. And he said, is the title of this book appearing to you frontwards or backwards? <laughs> and I couldn't tell <laughs> because of Aruberos. Word. Um, I tell you what, though, on the other cover, and may this serve as sort of as a final recommendation, I suppose, as indeed it has for me, on the cover is a quote from Mr. Tolkien himself. And he calls Edison the greatest and most convincing writer of invented worlds that I have read. Wow. Yeah, and Lewis follows up a review of the same book. He says he calls it a new climate of the imagination. Very cool. So oh, that's in the it. high praise the big, indeed the category. Dogs. Yeah, yes. the the big dogs appreciate this guy. So I'm in, I am looking forward to it. There we go, my friends. If that little discussion doesn't give you a few titles to chew on, I don't know what will. I'm feeling super smart after hanging out with you guys for an hour. That was really fun today. Word. Likewise, me too, except about you. You could be chewing on the sons of your enemies. Oh. <laughs> or you could have your hands cut off. <laughs> you know, we had all this high-minded conversation about modes of truth-telling and art as metaphor, but what we're going to go away with is bloody nubs from Shakespeare. <laughs> bloody nubs from Shakespeare. Rely on Emily. Rely on Emily. Oh, a girl coming through with gore. I love it. <laughs> Well, thanks, you guys, for another great episode. Appreciate you being with me today. Thanks to all you listeners for tagging along once again. Uh, we are looking forward already to our next episode of Bibliophiles. Meanwhile, we invite you to come check us out on the web to see what we're doing for readers and teachers and parents and families of all stripes at centerforlit.com or over in our membership site at pelicansociety.com. 
Facebook.com. Rate the podcast if you like and give us a comment or two. Uh, help us know which direction to go next with Bibliophiles. And until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.